Welcome to CII Radio. I'm Tim Groves, Program Development and Partnerships Manager for the Chartered Insurance Institute. In this episode, I'll be talking to Matt Watkinson. In this episode of the podcast, we're discussing Mastering Uncertainty, a new book with a focus on social capital and selling and how that is relevant to those working in insurance and financial planning. I'm joined by the book's author, Matt Watkinson, and CEO and co-founder of Methodical. Here is my conversation with Matt. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Uh, You're our keynote speaker at the Personal Finance Society conference in a few weeks, where you'll be sharing insights from your book, The Ten Principles Behind Great Customer Experiences, which we are obviously very much looking forward to. Matt has written three books in total, and the most recent one is called Mastering Uncertainty, which is what we'll be focusing on in the discussion today. Matt, would you give us a bit of background as to what the book is about and and how you came to write it? Yeah, sure. Well, um... The easiest way to to answer that is to say that each of the books is really trying to kind of put a capstone on or formalize a period of intense learning or discovery that I've been through in my career. So the first book that I'm talking about, the conference, when I was primarily engaged in designing websites, software, customer experiences, was realizing that there were these universal kind of underlying psychological principles that you could apply and that that might be helpful for other people to know to make that discipline more accessible right so that was the the result of that was my my first book the 10 principles behind great customer experiences which i'll be be talking about my second book the grid came about because as a consequence of that first book uh which which uh, i was very fortunate that it, it did well um Clients started asking for more strategic guidance on on things, a lot, bit, bit, bit less hands-on in terms of actually delivering and designing things, but more help us set this into our context as a as a business. Help us, you know, understand how we should be thinking about these topics on a more macro level. And the realization from that was, a, a business is a system where everything is is interconnected, right? So it makes sense to think holistically. A lot of people don't really do that. And as a consequence, they can easily invest their time and energy on the wrong things, uh, which aren't really going to help them. Or, you know, they can end up thinking that they're improving one thing in one area that ends up compromising another area, right? So for like a classic example would be cost cutting in a way that affects the quality of your product, which then negatively affect sales kind of thing would would be an obvious example or in my case people saying we have a customer experience problem without actually realizing or knowing whether that's true or not so that led me to write the second book the grid which was a kind of tool that allowed people to see their business as an interconnected whole or and think through that the third book mastering uncertainty came about uh, as a as a combination of building a relationship with a, a fascinating um and generally awesome kind of mentor called Chaba Conkoy, who's an investor and, and, and entrepreneur. And also the, the realization along with things that I learned from our conversations and discussions that most of the elements in the, the, the grid model or factors that determine your business success are A, beyond your direct control, 
and B, can change unpredictably. So in the context of business, we don't control what our rivals do. We don't control, in theory at least, regulatory activity or, or changes or changes to law. We don't control macroeconomic events like plagues or whatever it is that we experience. And we don't control which new technologies might suddenly emerge that, that, that change the lay of the land. And those things can change unpredictably. If you look at our track record as a species of predicting which technologies are going to take off or which new business ideas are going to be huge hits or successes, you realize that our, our ability to, to predict these things is, is kind of laughable. So as a consequence of that, business decision makers or operators or entrepreneurs or salespeople or anybody who's involved in business is always going to be confronting uncertainty. Right? The, the environment is inherently uncertain. So decision-making needs to have some kind of probabilistic component to it. And the other conclusion from that is that arguably your relationship with uncertainty or your attitude towards uncertainty is the single biggest determinant of your ability to succeed in business because it has such a profound effect on your decision-making. It affects everything from how you cope with setbacks to how you think about your role as a leader or manager, how you approach selling, how you approach the design or, or development of new products or services is going to be informed by your relationship with uncertainty. And if you imagine that at one kind of end, you've got, you know, the future is fundamentally knowable. If we just gather enough data and we're just clever enough and we just strategize enough, this kind of worldview of business as an intellectual contest. And then at the other end, you've got, well, we don't really know the future is inherently uncertain. We kind of just need to try it and see. It's not hard to see how those two different worldviews would result in very, very different processes, approaches, and, and outcomes, frankly, when you're dealing with uncertainty. So again, um, as with the first two books, I thought, wow, a lot of people aren't really thinking about this. They're not consciously aware of their relationship with uncertainty or even what their, what their attitude to uncertainty is. Um, and having no intention of writing a, a third book, really, it just seemed like a great opportunity to collaborate with with my my friend and, and mentor Chaba. And again, just try and well, what underpins all of this work and all of this writing is just trying to help people to make better decisions. You know, so it just would seem like an awesome opportunity. So off we went. You know, that's great. Well, it's really, really interesting. I must admit. A lot of our uh, members work in insurance, financial services, and a lot of those roles will be working with customers, so looking after existing relationships, but also will have a focus on finding and winning new clients. Um, and having been a broker for myself for quite a few years, I also know the importance that networking plays, uh, not just from pro prospecting and sales, but also career development as well and in relationships you build with others in the, in the industry. So it's because of that, I think most of them will be really interested in all of the insight that you cover in chapter four and five. So that's titled that's Social Capital and Selling. So, and yeah, and I've got a lot from reading them. So it'd be great to get, delve into those a little bit more. Oh, thank you. If we start with selling, well, the chapters, 
that are all about sales and you know how people can be the most effective sellers. Just wanted to ask you a question. You talk a little bit about mindset, about what is the best mindset to approach sales with, would you say? Yeah, uh, that's a very good question because I think one of the things that a lot of people struggle with is that they think of selling in a negative light. Right? Like a lot of people who aren't professional salespeople find the idea of being a salesperson kind of unsavory. But really, sales is best thought of as a process of research and problem solving. That's basically what sales is. It's about understanding what an individual's need is or what somebody's ambition or goal uh, or goal is and identifying how you and your products and your services can play a part in helping them accomplish that goal or ambition. So it's not about all of this stuff that we associate with salespeople like pushy closing and objection handling and ringing a bell and all of that stuff. It's really about research to understand and uncover your customers' needs and then identifying the most beneficial solution to them. And that, to me, is is sales in a nutshell. And I think if people reframed it as such, they would take a very, very different approach to it. And I think more people would be a lot better at it. And I think I think another thing that's so crucial about that is that we're all selling all the time, right? If you're a CEO, you're selling your vision to, to investors and employees. If you're a freelancer, you're selling your services to your clients. If you're in sales, obviously you're selling your product, but everybody is involved in the process of, of, of sales in, in a tremendous number of aspects of their life. If you apply for a new job, you're selling yourself to the employer, right? So the reason that this warranted a, a chapter in the book is that this is a fundamental life skill. And of course, bringing it back to the, the subject matter, it's inherently uncertain. Nobody can sell to 100% of people. Nobody does. It's probabilistic. So it's a really important life skill, and it's inherently a numbers game, basically. Yeah. I speak to quite a few successful people and a lot of them started out in sales and, and they say they're so grateful for the experience they had, getting used to things not going their way and accepting that people say no and um, actually, yeah, they got grew a tougher skin. So there's definitely a lot of benefits in that. But I have experienced some of those negative things you mentioned there from some of the places I worked at as well, actually. So made me chuckle a little bit. But yeah, it makes total sense what you're saying. You write in the book that a common mistake a lot of us make in sales is to focus on ourselves and, and the product we're selling. And I know I've been guilty of that when I've been in a broken role as well. Um, but you say that the focus should be on the customer. Be good to explain a little bit more uh, about why that's so important. Well, I mean, it's it's kind of a cardinal sin of selling to 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 focus on the on the product or service rather than the customer. And there are kind of fairly obvious reasons for that. I think if you were to just put it in a social context, like imagine you go to a party or barbecue or something. And there's a group of people and you meet a new person and there's a person there who just talks about themselves the entire time, right? They don't ask anybody any questions about themselves. They just go on and on and on about themselves, droning on and on and on, right? Do you want to have a conversation with that person? No. No, you don't. Don't get away quick as possible. The, the most engaging conversation is at a party or the person who draws people in is frankly the person who asks the most questions about other people, 
they show an interest in other people and they're curious about what's going on in other people's lives, right? And the same is true basically in, in the context of, of selling. It's just fundamental that the more you understand about what a person wants and what a person needs, the better able you're going to be to provide a solution to those needs, right? It's just, it's just logic. So the two foundational skills of selling are asking questions and listening. But time after time after time after time, we are bombarded with cold calls or, in, in my case, like LinkedIn messages every single day for people who know nothing about me. Don't ask me a single question about who I am or what I need or my context and expect me to give up my time for a Zoom call or phone call or whatever it is so that they can pitch me their product. It is the height of stupidity. I mean, it really is the height of stupidity. If you don't know what somebody wants or needs, you cannot sell effectively to them. It's just not possible. Like you might make a sale, but it's a lottery. You know, uh, it would just be happen to be in the right place at, at, at the right time. Now, that's not to say that I don't understand the temptation to do it because you understand your product, right? You know your product, you know your service. You might, you, you probably believe in it. You probably think it's a great product and you're excited about it, right? But it's just not an effective approach to selling. Selling begins with understanding what the customer needs, where they're trying to get to, right? The challenges that they feel are standing in their way between where they are today and where they desire to be in the future. It involves understanding the rational aspect of it. And the crucially, you know, anything relating to, to, to money, the, the emotional aspect of it. How much of this decision is being driven by fear? How much of it is being driven by greed? But how much of it has an underlying sense of anxiety about it, right? You need to understand all of this stuff. And then, first of all, the solution presents itself, which is great. And second of all, when you then present that solution in some kind of proposal to your client, you can present it in a way that says, these are the needs that you have told me. They will nod their head. This is why this is important. They will nod their head. This is the ideal solution. They will nod their head and then they will write you a check. You know, it's just as, 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 as simple as that. And I'm astonished at how little interest most salespeople show in their customer and understanding their needs, which to me is a, an enormous opportunity area. I think that's a fantastic bit of advice. And I think even if our listeners take away that last few minutes of what you've just said, I mean, I'm sure probably improve a lot of the sales techniques or at least try it and, and, and see. And uh, it sounds, yeah, makes total sense. So, I mean, I, I, I own a, an agency consultancy business, right? So, and because I, I own it and I'm kind of the guy whose name's on the cover of the books and that kind of thing, I am heavily involved in sales for my company all the time. And I can tell you a couple of questions that we ask prospective clients. First of all, what matters most to you about who you partner with on this project? And another one, what are you expecting from us? Right? And I can tell you 100% of the time, 
the answer to those two questions are not what I expected or not what I assumed, or they actually don't really have an answer and helping them work through that answer adds like tremendous value. So even just asking like these fundamental questions, what actually matters to you about who you do business with? Like that, that the insight that you get from just asking these simple questions is just so powerful because if you know the answers to that versus just assuming what the answers are and you're wrong, your pitch is just going to fall flat, you know? That's fantastic. And I know you've touched on a few things already in what we've just discussed on the next chapter, which is the social capital, which which I think links quite nicely into the selling, but also the networking side of things. So so it's called social capital. But what do you mean by social capital and, and how can people benefit from working on developing it for themselves? So the reason that we talk about the idea of social capital is that most people think of, of capital as a kind of resource. And they tend to think that the, the genesis of opportunity is financial capital, right? They think I have money and I can invest it and, and, and grow it. And if I want to launch a business or I want to do anything, what I really need is financial capital. And that, you know, there's, there's certainly truth in that. But the precursor of financial capital is social capital. It's relationships with other people. All of our opportunity in life comes about from who we know and our ability to build relationships, right? Even if you want to pitch a venture capitalist for investment, you need to know who they are and you need to have some kind of relationship with them. If you want to start a business, you need to build relationships with people who might work for you or people who might become your, your partners or, 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 or customers, right? And when you look at life in general, as the saying goes, it's not what you know, it's who you know. This is, this is a, a fundamental truth about how the world works. The better able you are to build and manage relationships, the more opportunity you create for yourself in every single facet of life. It's like a fundamental life skill, building relationships. Yeah. No, I, I, I really love this chapter, to be honest. And, and when I was reading it, I was sort of thinking – this, I couldn't disagree with anything. It all makes total sense, but it just it almost seems so obvious. Why aren't we thinking and acting like that anyway? Um, I really liked the bit about social instincts and how we've evolved as well. I thought that was really interesting. Would you just give us a quick explanation as to what you mean by that social instincts and the evolution? Yeah, so we evolved uh, in an environment where we would frequently kind of cross paths with, with other people. Right? And we also involve, uh, evolved an environment where our outlook on relationships was necessarily long-term because of that. Right? So this is why you see all sorts of behaviors that seem to defy logic, like altruism. Like why, why would, if somebody stops you in the street and asks you for directions, why would you help them? Like it doesn't benefit you to, to help some stranger on the street who needs to know where they're, where they're going. We evolved this instinct because it's a kind of form of reciprocation that's like, as Robert Trivers, uh, the evolutionary biologist says, like smeared over time. Right? So we evolved in, in an environment where what goes around would almost certainly come around. Right. So following these kind of social instincts um, is tremendously powerful. The other one that uh, I, is really something that a lot of readers have picked up on in the book is this idea of costly signaling as a way of building trust. Like 
There are all sorts of ways in which we operate that are designed to communicate trust by kind of being um, inefficient in the way that we that we do things. So obviously, one of the challenges is with organizations that they try and engineer all of this stuff out. Right? They try and be hyper-efficient. They try and think, uh, they push people to think short-term. And they basically defy all of our social instincts and their behaviors, which compromises people's ability to build relationships. Okay, very interesting. And if anybody else wants to know more about this, then obviously it's, it's in your book, which we'll, uh, we'll, we'll highlight at the end. You also write the most important principle in creating social capital is being a host rather than a guest. And I really like this idea. Again, I wonder if you could just explain a little bit about what you mean and how that might apply to people working in the insurance and the financial services profession, if, if possible. Well, well yeah, I, I really love this concept too. And uh, to the extent that I've included it, uh, I'll be talking a little bit about it in the keynote uh, presentation as well. But the, the, the basic idea is that Kind of the golden rule of life, in, in my mind, is to go through life as a host, not a guest. And, and it's something I've observed in not just pretty much every very successful person I know, but every happy person I, I know, really. And, and, and you can easily contextualize this within your own life circumstance, right? Because everybody at some point pretty much, well, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people have at some point found themselves in a hosting role. Maybe it's a birthday party. Maybe it's just a, um, a few friends around for, for dinner. And if you think about how you behave in your role as a host, what does that involve? Well, you make people feel welcomed and valued, right? They show up at your door and you're happy to see them. You welcome them into your home, right? You attend to their individual needs, right? You say, what could I get you to drink? You don't just say, here's your oat milk, whether they want it or not, right? <laughs> They might want a margarita, something. You show a sincere interest in in that person. Right? You also look at how other people might benefit from knowing one another. So you might invite people who you think, oh, those two might get on, or those people are both interested in, you know, whatever it might be, cricket or something. Like maybe I should put those two together. Right? These are all things that we do instinctively when we're when we're hosting. And the consequence of that is that the host who is creating value for other people builds social capital, right? They build their reputation. They build their, their resources and other people want to do things for them in, reciproca in reciprocation. It's not a quid pro quo thing. It's just a kind of karmic law of the universe that people who act as a host in life create more opportunity for themselves because they're creating more value for other people. So if you can apply that mentality to your business relationships, looking at how you can be helpful, looking at how you can connect other people, looking at how you make other people who enter your sphere feel welcomed and valued, looking at how you're attending to individuals' needs, looking at how you can create value for people, you know, the rest is pretty much going to take care of itself in the long term. It might not be overnight, but in the long term, it's going to make an insane difference to your reputation, to your brand, and to the opportunities that start to flow into you, into your you know, realm. 
I really like it, and I don't think many people would, dis- would disagree. I think the only thing sometimes in the sales world, and maybe it needs to change in this way, is that a lot of it is about what you can do now, what business you can win now, as opposed to, you know, having a bit more of a delay, a patient approach. I think, you know, let's build loyalty, let's build um, quality leads and, and opportunities, which will take a bit longer. But in the long term, you probably get more benefits than winning on price, you know, quickly. So I think that's a challenge in some sales industry. Yeah, I think a series of short-term decisions isn't a long-term decision, is it, though? And we're going to be around for a long time. So, you know, I think treating every relationship as if it's a long-term relationship is also extremely important. Like when I met Chabba, the co-author for this book, we met at a party, went out for breakfast, started going hiking together. I didn't know that five years later we'd start a book together that we'd be involved in kind of looking at business opportunities together. I didn't know. But we both, you know, were good friends, valued the relationship, and then one thing kind of leads to another, you know. I think it's great. My, something my dad used to say a long time ago is treat every person you meet as an opportunity and, and almost treat every day as an opportunity because you don't know what's there. Just keep an open mind. And, yeah, it's something that's stuck in me, actually. And, and hearing you and reading it in the book, it all brought it all back. So, yeah, it's great. Just another thought then, Matt, in, in our profession, like so many industries now, face-to-face events and networking are, are not fully back to what they were pre-pandemic. And also we're finding that a lot of the younger professionals, they prefer this hybrid virtual world. And I was just thinking about from a social capital perspective, do you think it's possible to still build social capital in a more virtual world or, or is face-to-face a really vital factor for that to be effective? Yeah, that's a good question. I... Um... I spend a reasonable amount of time, even though I have a love-hate relationship with it, to be honest, I spend a reasonable amount of time on on social media, like LinkedIn in, in, in particular. And I find it can be a good a good means to start building real-world relationships, right? So I have a, a fair number of, of connections on there, but the, the, the best... The, the most valuable connections have come about from like connecting with people online over a shared interest or a, or a, something like that, and then actually meeting them, making the effort to meet them in person. Because I think you just build you build a much better connection or a much stronger relationship with people if you actually meet them and if you make the effort, in particular, to to to, to meet them. So I think it's it's definitely possible, um, but I think. Like you, you kind of cement any relationship when you actually meet and when you make the effort to go and to go and meet. Yeah, you know, and this is again a form of costly signaling, like making effort to go and see somebody. Like I, I fly out to see to see prospective clients. I make the effort. I, I don't have the expectation that people are going to write my business a check while I sit on my ass in Venice Beach and, and don't make any effort to go and see them. Like I'll happily fly anywhere in the world to go and to go and, and meet prospective clients because it matters to me that we have good chemistry that we know one another that there's not really a face to the name because you can get that over zoom but like you understand people you know and i think it's it's important but it's definitely doable uh and, and i think it's it's never been easier frankly to build to build a valuable high quality network by kind of lighting your little beacon and seeing who's drawn to it. I mean, I'm not like a social media super user, and I'm not one of these 
people who, in my mind, engages in all this kind of distasteful stuff of trying to hook people and lure them in and all of that bollocks. That's not really for me. But I, I do see it as an opportunity to build relationships with like-minded people or to to share my perspective on 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 work or, or, or the world and see who's 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 drawn to it and build relationships that way. Yeah. No, I think it's great. So it just shows, you know, you, you can you can use both, but but face to face still needs to be a part in that. And I, I think it's people are coming back now and I think we're starting to see more events ourselves at the CII and the PFS. And yeah, even last year people were really excited about coming back face to face. So no, that's good to hear. Thank you. Obviously, you're speaking at the PFS National Conference in a couple of weeks' time, um, and you'll be talking mainly about uh, when you read the books, the ten principles behind great customer experiences. Uh, some of those attending will probably be listening to this podcast. So, for those that are, is your opportunity to sell the slot. Why would you urge PFS members to attend and catch your session? Well, hopefully, I won't set too high an expectation because that's going to be self-defeating. <laughs> um... The reason that I would encourage people to attend it is because I think all of us, all of us who operate a business are trying to create value for our customers because without it, we're not going anywhere, right? And what this presentation presents in very compact form, because the session's actually quite short, the keynote address, is 10 highly pragmatic straightforward and accessible ways that you could literally start applying that afternoon or the next day to help you create more value for your customers. And I think that that's of of relevance to every every single business. If you aspire to create more value for your customers, which in turn gives you a competitive advantage, then this presentation is going to tell you in pragmatic terms 10 very straightforward ways that, that you can do that. I, I am I wouldn't say I'm anti-intellectual, but I think of business as a pragmatic discipline, right? I think of it more like being a tradesman, like a plumber or an electrician, and I think of it as being like a rocket scientist or a kind of abstract mathematician or philosophy professor. So if you're a pragmatist who owns a business or is involved in selling or is frankly looking to just get things done, then these techniques, which have all been proven in, in combat, for want of a better word, are going to help you. And even And you don't need to take all 10 away, even if you just come away from it with a general sense of like, oh yeah, that's something we could look at. Or, oh, that one thing strikes a call with me. I could I could work on that. You know, hopefully that will really help people. And that's my goal. My goal is to is to help the people who attend the session to have a more successful enterprise. And that's what I'm focused on. So I, I hope it will be of benefit to them. Brilliant. Thank you. And one thing I will say about uh, I've got the I've got the the customer experience book as well, the mastering uncertainty. One thing I loved about it is, is it's really well, it's well written. It's so simple to follow. It's written in a really simple language, but I also love the way you, you highlight summary, everything at the end of each chapter. That's, that's great. It was really nice. And, um, you know, so I could read it, but then refer back to those without having to read it again to still, you know, re- remind myself of that knowledge. So really good. I really, really like that. So, and finally, 
Are there any other resources or any final bits of advice that you'd like to share with our listeners before you say goodbye? That's a very good question. I think the one thing that I, I'm kind of asked variants on this theme pretty often. The, the one thing that I would say, if I could go back and give myself advice when I was like much younger in my teenage years or, or embarking on my career, I would say the single most valuable insight that I've learned from mastering uncertainty really that I wish I could have learned earlier is to think in terms of downside rather than upside. Right. So to explain what I mean by that, most people go through life setting goals and trying to plan out strategies that are going to guarantee that they achieve that goal. And that's fine. But in an uncertain world, often we can't know or often our plans get derailed or often something unexpected happens. Right. So one of the most powerful concepts that I learned from trying to think more about my relationship with uncertainty is to think about your downside. So I can't know what the upside of attending on this podcast is. I don't know whether it will sell books, whether someone will contact me on LinkedIn, whether I'll win a $10 trillion client. I, I can't know. Right? I, I have no idea. It could be none of those things. But I can know that if I don't record the podcast, none of those things are going to happen. So the best way to make a decision in most circumstances is to say, what's my downside? And if your downside is acceptable to you or affordable to you or reasonable to you, then give it a go. And if you can do that, you're going to massively increase your like luck surface area, for want of a better term, the likelihood that good things are going to happen. And we're so upside focused in our decision-making that it's actually become counterproductive for most people. You can make far better decisions in an uncertain environment by limiting your downside than you can trying to secure your upside. And you see this in the behavior of entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs don't care about return on investment. They work on the basis of affordable loss. They say, how much am I prepared to spend to see whether this idea is actually going to work? And you can apply that what's my downside approach to just about everything. Like asking someone on a date, what's your downside? Well, downside is they might say no, but they're saying no by default if you don't ask them. Like what's my downside to asking this person for advice? What's my downside to attending this event? What's my, like you can, and when you look at it that way, you realize that in many, many circumstances, the upside is unknowable and potentially infinite, extrapolated over time. And the downside is very limited. So you just create more opportunity for yourself by thinking in those terms. So that, I think, is the one thing that I've really learned that's really helped me personally. And uh, I think it can help a lot of other people uh, as well. So hopefully that's a good note to end on. That's brilliant. I love that. And I like the idea of going back and talking to our younger selves and what advice we would give us. I think we could all probably learn a few things from from that exercise as well. So. Thank you so much. Honestly, um, yeah, really good. I've enjoyed reading the book. I've enjoyed speaking to you. So thank you again for your time. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to having you at PFS conference. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of CII Radio. To find out more, visit thejournal.cii.co.uk forward slash podcast or follow us on Twitter at CII Group. Until next time, thanks and goodbye.